Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Grape and Find Unfiltered. I'm your host, John Griffin. Today, I'll be bringing you the first of a two-part interview with Brendan Carter of Unigozello, a young winery in the Adelaide Hills that's helping to redefine what it means to be an Australian winery. In part one, I'll start off by butchering Brendan's last name, and then we'll talk about an Australian grape grower's cooperative. In part two, we'll be talking about natural wine and the state of the Aussie wine industry as a whole. All right, let's do it. Today I have here in the office, Brendan Clark. 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 Carter. 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 Carter in Australia. Carter. It's funny, like every time I order a coffee, and I, I need to mispronounce my last name in this country. So I'm like Carter. And I got last time I got K A D A, and and so every time I'm like Carter, like, oh, oh yeah, Carter. Carter. I get that. Thanks. Cool. No worries. Cool. Rock and roll, Here man. We go. Brendan Carter. <laughs> Here, large yeah, and in charge. From Unigozello, a newish winery from the Adelaide Hills. Correct. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you. Very. How glad are you to be finding uh, Seattle so far? Loving it. Probably uh, one of the more amazing cities that I've been to. I mean, every, every single place that I go to in the States, it's just, it's another whole, it's another whole country. Uh, you know, Washington's great to fly into, the great people I met today, awesome city to walk around, really easy city to get around, and, and a really great place to, you know, share a story and some wine. Well, that's cool. Yeah, Laura told me that you guys flew right past the volcano on your approach. That was sick. It's that was cool, awesome. Huh? No, like, totally. Seriously, I, I, I pointed to her out the window, and we just basically couldn't tear our eyes off for the last 30 I tell minutes. everybody coming in or out of Seattle, get a window seat. Because it's totally, it's just super cool. It was so. really, really awesome. I mean, we, we also, you know, got to remember we live in a country with no snow, so uh, even just to see white on top of anything is pretty sick. That's it's true. pretty cool. Well, welcome to town. I'm glad to have you here. <laughs> okay, so tell me, Unicozello, what's the elevator pitch? You just ran into somebody. Mm-hmm. Hey, check this out. This is new. This is fun. What totally. is? What's the story? Well, Unicozello was an idea. Around about uh, 10 years ago, executed by my, my wife and I to make really great, honest Australian wine from and talk really more about Australian soils in a more globally relevant way. So essentially, we craft dry-grown grapes from the harshest climate from the most ancient patch of dirt that grapes still get to grow on today. Wow, that's uh, really and that's, cool. It is really cool. And, and for that, to, you know, the majority of our wines actually Fiano, a white wine. So bringing buyers a white wine from Australia that's textual and made in a really wholesome way. Uh, you know, and from like one of the most unique landscapes that you can make craft wine on, just in general, it's a really exciting proposition to be able to bring people in the states whose, you know, perspective of Australian wine is quite skewed from the reality. Okay, so ten years more or less. More or less, yeah. So, uh, what's your background before that? What were you and Laura doing? Uh, uh, so, look, I studied viticulture and enology, so the mm-hmm. double degree, I suppose you would say, and and Laura studied agriculture. Uh, then we both got great positions at awesome wineries in Australia and France and Italy. And eventually my wife actually became a better winemaker than myself and, and took over the reins that there. It always happens. <laughs> it always happens that way. I don't know. We're different people in, in all the best ways. I became really impassioned with indigenous culture and working outside, working with native ingredients and also working with vines. And just the impact that that has, the broader impact. So I found myself more torn towards the vine side of things, and Laura was more torn towards the wine side of things. Pretty cool, because uh, someone's got to take care of the vines. So Very. speaking of vines, so, so are you owning your own vineyards? Unfortunately not. We literally started this with 
five grand as savings. Oh, um, really? Wow. Yeah, like, uh, what was that? 2012. So not quite a decade. And really just expanded from there. It was, it was quite a rapid rise. So, I don't know, it's, it's been a really interesting thing. Like, we didn't, because we didn't inherit vineyards, we didn't have, like, winemaking family. Mm. We, we didn't even come from South Australia. We're largely, actually, expat kids. We both spent a lot of time growing up overseas. Oh, wow. Oh, well, so I, I grew up a lot in, in Thailand, Italy, and, oh, really? and, and in oh, Queensland. Cool. Uh, Laura, you know, she was raised in South Africa and Japan and Thailand and New Zealand. Uh, obviously, wow. we're both Aussie-born and, and Aussie-raised, but, um, you know, just spending so much time around the place. And it, we really got to see a lot of the world growing up. And when we came back to Australia, we very quickly realised that, you know, Australia has wondrous, wondrous culture but we lack an ability to be able to accurately identify it, like define it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't define something, it's really hard to share it with someone in a concise manner. Yeah, definitely. And wine happens to be just one of those great little tools that we have. You know, it's like a social lubricant, right? But also it, it expresses sight, soil, lifestyle, culture. It helps Aussies identify with that and also gives us a remarkably great, you know, accurate tool to be able to take overseas and share with other people. We would argue that we're bringing to light an Australian story that hasn't been shared before. It is very exciting. It's very real. You know, I liken it to the underground movements of hip hop in the 90s, where an entire populace was feeling disenchanted and really had something super powerful to say. We just say that through wine. I think it's kind of a common thread with wine from pretty much everywhere, actually, you know. At the moment, yeah, for sure. And, And I think it's, uh, there's a lot of this stuff happening. I think we globally experience this in a really yeah. fun way because of the demographic divide. Because the world 10 years ago was really different to the way it is now. And 10 years before that, really different again. We're going through these rapid expansions. Yeah, it's going to continue. Totally going to continue. But now we've got to anticipate that. You know, now we've got to be a bit more open to that. And we already see, you know, the world changes and the infrastructure doesn't keep up. Wine is just one of those things that forces us to take time. We don't have a choice. Unless we live in places like Thailand, you can have like three crops three a year. Three crops per year, I know. <laughs> Imagine trying to sell that inventory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you don't have any estate vineyards at this point? Do you want to try to get some of your own? Totally. We're working towards it at a rapid pace. See, one of the biggest things that we constantly face is we do some really radical stuff when it comes to viticulture. We don't think it's radical, but other growers will perceive it to be, and therefore it's really hard for them to get their heads around it. So what better way to actually do it than do it ourselves, showcase to other people? It just takes money. Correct. Yeah. Totally, totally. Money we don't have, money we hope to have, but mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things that we know that any support into our business, how are we going to direct that? We're going to direct that as reinvestment. We're going to direct that towards really good causes. Uh, we're going to try to grow the you know, Australian wine industry in a really healthy way. Well, that's great. Totally. So back to the growers. Yep. So you don't have any estate vineyards at the moment. No. So you're working with how many growers? And how do these growers come about planting Italian varietals? So that's a two-part question. Totally, a couple of ways. So we work with around about 20 growers. Uh, It does uh, gravitate because sometimes there's either new growers into the fold or old growers that we've uh, set up with other... You know, we're quite an interesting producer where um, we're actually not that greedy. So, for example, one of the best vineyards that we ever worked with was in the Riverland, a really great organically managed vineyard which is rare, funnily enough, and oddly enough, in the Riverland. And started growing grapes. We took the first sort of crops from there. We did amazing, you know, basically those grapes put us on the map. And then they had the opportunity to get a big company contract. And we were all the more happy for that to happen Hmm. because, man, that means one of these bigger companies with a bigger marketing budget is going to be able to grow this one. Unfortunately, four years onwards, they did nothing with that. They blended all the wines away. The marketing team in that company in particular just wasn't into it. And, you know, they got them out of the contract. 
And that's where we just pick them back up again. So we work about 20 to 25 different growers, depending on the season. We hope to be working with more. How they actually end up growing them, there is a multitude of different things. Like where we set up, of course, when we set up a winery, we do get a lot of growers sort of knocking on our door going, hey, are you interested in X, Y, Z? You know, quite often we'll get growers that will contact us going, um, something terrible has just happened and a company's cut out a contract from underneath me. Come and have a look at my vineyard. That's a foot in the door. We can get there and actually look and go, hey, you do have a really great plot of land, but you're growing the wrong things. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can start working you with XYZ for a part of like a, we've got a growers cooperative. You have a co-op? We have a co-op. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So um, we uh, ran a, it was 2015, when a massive bushfire. So basically, we should go back like- I heard about the fires. Okay, look, 2011, lots of rain. Very, a lot of rain during the majority of Australia, not not Margaret River, amazing vintage there, but most of Australia was really, really tough. And then 2012, we talk about how great 2012 was, but 2012, due to effects of 2011, the vines couldn't get enough energy into them. And so we got 50% loss of yield and, mm-hmm. and the according rise in quality because of that. But the growers weren't paid double for the fruit. No. They still lost out. So growers lost out in 2011, growers lost out in 2012. 2013, pretty good vintage in our area. We got late frost, so there was a 60% reduction in yield for growers. That sucks. 2014, we had something really interesting happen in our area that no one really talks about. And that's the fact that we didn't get all of our birds fed. Wow. Yeah, and so we had like really, really shitty flowering. So um, birds smashed the grapes. And then on top of that, because we didn't get really good sort of flowering for like other crops, we didn't get enough pollinators in the area to be able to give really good berry sets. So we had really good fruit set, lots of bad berry sets. So you might call this Millerondage, but this was done to the most epic level that I've ever seen. So we had lots of bunches, not a lot of berries. Wow. So that makes it really expensive for wineries and growers mm-hmm. alike. Again, drop in yield, 70% reduction yield. 2015, the rains had come. Massive crops, really good quality. Everything was great. We even had enough sunlight to ripen that, that higher crop load. But in our area alone, we got the what we call the Samson Flat bushfire, one of the worst bushfires we've had in recent memory in Australia. And that, that caused a number of issues. Smoke taint, which has become a mm-hmm. real thing, and now a global phenomenon in California and, and Yarra Valley and, and in other countries. Um, here too yeah absolutely yeah absolutely of course um you know so what we saw is like a lot of growers that were getting basically stiff out of contracts where you know the winery would willingly take all the Syrah even though Syrah is actually way more susceptible than most of the grape varieties and that would knock back the Viognier the Merlot and the Semillon because they're the three grape varieties that are tough to sell so any way that a winery could get out of being contracted to buy those grapes it will and and we saw at a couple of circumstances vineyards that unequivocally would not be smoke tainted because we live there the fire came within 20 meters of our winery hmm. you know we were there we were putting all the wine away in lock rooms and just praying that it wasn't going to burn down we were running around all the vineyards to see which ones would be touched and not touched by smoke so we saw vineyards getting knocked back for smoke taint that just simply didn't have it and growers contacted say look if i just gave you a bunch of grapes can you make me a model wine so at least I would have that wine there to take back to that winery mm-hmm. outside of vintage, outside of this tumultuous time, and prove to them. Maybe it was in a court of law. Maybe it was just to save face. At the end of it, they're like, you can just keep the wine. We're like, well, I don't feel right doing that. How about I'll just give you 50% of the profits. Once we gave them the profit and did the calculations back, the growers were really quite surprised because, see, we're in our area they'll get around 900 to $1,200 per tonne. And we're not afraid to talk about the money terms because I think it's a conversation y'all should be having. Well, at least we should be having. When we give back profits on just a 20-buck bottle of wine, this is inside Australia and it will be very comparable to what Mm -hmm. what we would do if we were exporting it uh, as well. 
we give them back four and a half thousand dollars per ton. Right. It's a fifty percent profit share. So the profit margins for producers that don't have big marketing budgets and big you know things like that was only done on small scale. Um, are pretty good. They're really really good, in fact. And, and they're, getting, they're getting paid. Yeah, and then the next bit they were like, um, you know, can I sell you some more grapes? Would you would you take more for free? And we kind of sat there going, are we starting a co-op? Is that what's happening? And then we had this other thing happening with Unico at the time. We were like, we need to find a lot of vineyards to be able to put these varieties. We we don't own any vineyards. We also don't own any relationships. But we found a really great way to be able to forge those. We managed in twelve months to forge greater relationships with grassroots growers than most companies have done in a decade. You know, it's wow. really quite fascinating. We saw three of the largest vineyard owners in the area actually sell their vineyards under financial duress. Wow. So, yeah, because they couldn't sell their grapes that year. Yeah. I read something that in your area, there actually aren't that many actual wineries. Yeah, yeah, It's just yeah. growers. Yeah, a lot of growers. We're in the agricultural heart of the Adelaide Hills. Adelaide Hills, fortunately, a growing reputation globally for high-quality wine. And Adelaide Hills, think of it as like a mini chili. So it is... A, a very thin but very long region. So, and we have, we talk about it in more local terms northern hills, middle hills, southern hills. And it's actually as the mouth of our old river, Murray mm. River, actually used to snake. Think of it like the Mississippi, right. for example. Now, at the top, as it's going down, way up river, it drops its heaviest sediments. Things like quartz, for example. Mm. Have, all the soils are alluvial, but we have quartz shot clays. Then, as you move down, you have more clay based soils, and you move more down, you have sandy based soils. And then it hits the old mouth of the river, which is McLaren Vale, which is a vale as it opened up. Mm-hmm. And as that sea receded and as the river changed shape, it receded behind the Adelaide Hills and it left everything that was there. That's why if you go to Blewett Springs, it's just sand. Wow. Straight up sand. That was the mouth of the River Murray. Really cool soils. I need to go check it out. Yeah, really, really awesome. So like up in the northern Adelaide Hills, because that's where we have you know the highest peaks and lowest troughs, we have all that clay, so we have you know slightly more nutritious soils. We have greater sunlight exposition. We tend to grow a lot of stuff up there in terms of volume of fruit. So mm-hmm. there tends to be a lot of vineyards, and those vineyards are quite big. Average size might be around about 50 hectares, mm-hmm. which is big in Australia because we have other vineyards that are immensely smaller than that. We have some vineyards up there that are 800, mm-hmm. for example. So there is a big juxtaposition up that way. However, for the amount of fruit of tonnage of that sub-area, we should have like 300 wineries. If we look at like how much the average size of a winery mm-hmm. is in Australia, but we have like three. Three. And we're like the biggest one. <laughs> and wow. the other are like cottage guys. The others are like 500 to like 1,000 case wineries. So these guys are really dependent upon the big, big wineries to buy the fruit in order to stay For sure. And some, have, some have branched out and they're like selling to a multitude of different customers. But there's all sorts of logistics and risks mm-hmm. with that, like not being able to pay for fruit and, or like a small producer that's starting up that isn't well backed or isn't well capitalized that can't pay even though the fruit is referenced to the global price of fruit is actually quite cheap it is a really exciting place to be because the sort of price point for entry into that market to start making wine basically and start your own winery isn't that expensive it's pretty affordable it is in global terms it is pretty affordable i don't think like you're still talking about the cost of a brand new car sure you know but that you're starting a business you're starting a livelihood and and it is a great place to to start there's also no preconceived idea of what we're meant to be mm-hmm. in that area. Like if we were in Barossa and we didn't make Shiraz... They'd uh, show you the door. Yeah, well, maybe they might not, but I, uh, every distributor would be like, I'm bringing on a Barossa brand that doesn't make you know, exactly. Shiraz. It would be weird. Yeah. So you really would struggle. You really would struggle mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, like we started up a cooperative and it's growing quite rapidly. So how many um, members are involved in that? Uh, rotating 13 different 
crowers wow. in, in are in the northern Adelaide Hills area. So we drew like a ten kilometer radius around our winery, mm-hmm. and we're just trialing it steady, steady because you know if once we and we do have a lot of um, uh, growers that do rely on that project now, you know if something goes wrong with that, it could cause immensely more damage. So we're just building in, like, we're, we're young people, we're like, we're in our 20s. So we're still understanding the throes of just business and managing staff and, and, and global distribution. And these are all big deal things, right? That other companies have whole teams of experienced exactly. people that are, where we don't get that baggage of legacy, but we also don't have the benefit of wisdom and experience. Yeah, exactly. we, there is a, it's a pro and a con. I am distinctly interested in ensuring that basically even the business is insulated from me. Like what? What happens if I wake up one day and there's something switches in my brain and I become a greedy motherfucker? I also want to make sure that I can protect my own business from me. There's a reason why, like, we're very heavily invested in actually um, B Corporation mm-hmm. certification. So we're we're doing all these things to ensure that that we are a. And I believe that's a globally relevant thing for any new business. Should be a certified B Corporation. You know, if you if you're not and you can't get certification, you've got a problem, and you you know, the inherent things you have to fix. Um, but yeah, if you, if you aren't considering things like legacy and, and how you're leaving things and leaving things in a better way, then you know I think you're going to have a diminishing market, not an expanding one. Oh, definitely, definitely seeing a trend towards that. You know, for sure. I mean, we'll be the first if we do get it, and we're still going through it. We'll be the first winery in Australia, first distillery in Australia. Um, distillery. Well, sorry, yeah, we have a distillery as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds fun. So, yeah, can you imagine? Like, so this is successful. Can you imagine other parts of Australia? You know, for sure, absolutely taking, taking it on. Absolutely, see cooperatives. Firstly, cooperatives in and of itself are actually very, very, very powerful because they give a grower another pathway to market. You can't go into Trader Joe's and buy Sauvignon Blanc grapes, or maybe you can in this country. I know in our country you can't mm-hmm. buy Sauvignon Blanc from supermarkets. Um, so growers need a winery to buy their fruit, or they need to establish their own winery to be able to accept their fruit, or they need a cooperative that's going to help them in those times. It's going to at least find that price point for their fruit that is in between both selling to a winery as fruit or value-adding in your own winery and building a brand. You know, the problem is, one, it's about management, obviously, of cash flow, of time, of energy and effort, of skills. Some people just don't have the skills to make and sell wine. Some people don't want to do it. Some people don't want to do it. Managing, you know, the expectations of what you want in your own life. That's where cooperatives can be super powerful because what what basically we require our growers to just do what they do best. And they have the trust in us to be able to do what we do best. We have specialisation, essentially, within that production thing. So the only point where it falls down, and this is like getting into like real epic like esoteric areas of philosophy is you know it's things like why marxism would fall down or you know these perfect systems are basically protection from inherent greed if we can protect against that we've built a, a pretty much perfect cooperative model I'm, and that I'm, is in theory like that in is, theory oh yeah, no, yeah. there think... is no perfect cooperative model in the world in the world but there are some that are just like you really look up to like Protatore del barbaresco for example sure. amazing cooperative amazing wines at all price points can control some of the most amazing vineyards to some of the more bulk vineyards. That would be the hope that if one day we could get to that point in Australian wine, that's next level, you know? It's the same thing with Unico Zillow. As long as we're employing nature-responsive design to our vineyards, we make things like natural winemaking just happenstance. Like, they don't become a dogmatic philosophy. See, the thing is, like, if we can figure it out where we are, there's no excuse why you wouldn't be able to just do it everywhere. Completely. Sure. That's right, Brendan. We're going to figure it out. Be sure to catch part two when we talk about natural wine and the state of the Aussie wine industry as a whole. Until then, have a good week.